0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from The Young Turks, Counterspend, The Majority Report, Jim Hightower, Comedian Lee Camp, The Rachel Maddow Show, and The David Pakman Show. And a note for our more sensitive listeners, the last clip of this episode may make you physically ill, and that's not even a joke. It made me queasy.
1: Media in this country, the establishment media, is basically willing to be stenographers for our government, and especially the Pentagon. Maybe the group that they should be most skeptical about, they're the least skeptical about, and they just take whatever they say and they present it as news. We have a great example of that when it comes to the reporting on Iran. Apparently the Pentagon wants to fear-monger on it, scare people, so that apparently we're more ready to go to war with Iran. So CNN is, of course, here to do their bidding. Wolf Blitzer is going to be talking to Chris Lawrence, their CNN Pentagon correspondent. Let's watch
2: missile tests showed off their capabilities, and a new report from the Pentagon confirms it. Iran's ballistic missiles are more accurate, more versatile, and more deadly than ever. The report finds that Iran may be technically capable of flight testing an intercontinental ballistic missile by 2015, the type of missile that could hit the U.S. if it works.
1: Oh my god, by 2015 it's new information from the Pentagon! Of course, as usual, Glenn Greenwald has done a brilliant job of breaking this down at salon.com, where he explains, you know what, that's the same exact report that Fox News was using two years ago. Oh my God, they could hit us by 2015. There's nothing new about it at all. It's just another round of propaganda. But it's about to get much worse. Let's keep watching.
2: Analyst John Pike says Iran already has missiles that reach more than 600 miles, enough to strike Israel's eastern border. But the report reveals Iran continues to improve a ballistic missile with a range of nearly 1,300 miles. This would give them the ability to attack a number of European countries, uh, which would give them a degree of political influence in a crisis that they might not otherwise have.
1: Oh my God, they could hit Kyrgyzstan! Do you see that? Maybe. By the way, do they have the missiles that can go 1,300 miles? If you listen really carefully to that report, no, they don't. They're working on that program. So, wait. Earlier, you said they might be able to hit the U.S., but their best missiles only go 600 miles. That's nowhere near the U.S. Don't worry. CNN has an explanation. Watch. The real battle may come on
2: the high seas, though. Within the last few weeks, the U.S. Navy has doubled the number of mine sweepers in the region to protect the oil supply moving through the Persian Gulf. The Pentagon report says Iran is developing short-range missiles that can identify ships at sea. Maneuver towards them in mid-flight. And Iran already has a missile that could reach the U.S. if it could put it on a ship and move it to within 600 miles of the American coastline.
1: (laughs) That would be a giant, colossal if. But that's going to be lost on their audience, because what's their audience going to see? A bunch of missiles going off, and he said twice they could hit the U.S., they could hit the U.S., if they get a ship within six hundred miles how the hell would they get a ship within six hundred miles of the u.s. in fact this is the best part of it turns out last year cnn quoting the pentagon without any questions again last year said the exact opposite when the pentagon wanted to put out propaganda about how strong they were and how weak iran was listen to what cnn wrote on their website quote it would be nearly impossible For Iran's Navy to threaten the US coast with warships, military experts said Wednesday. But wait, 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 wait. Can they attack us at any moment, or is it impossible for them to come anywhere near us to use those? We're not done yet. Same report from September twenty eighth of twenty eleven. Iran doesn't have the capability to come within close proximity to the United States to conduct hostile activities. Even if Iran launched missiles, we would sink their ships. Immediately. So, which one is it? But that's the amazing thing about CNN. They don't care at all. They're like, okay, Pentagon propaganda tells me last year that it is impossible for Iran to move close enough to hit us. Pentagon propaganda tells me this year. oh my god they could move close enough to hit us did anything change in the meanwhile no did you even bother to ask him hey wait a minute last year you told me that they had no chance of coming within six hundred miles of the u.s. has that changed no i'm not gonna bother asking questions i got a scoop i got a scoop somebody the pentagon told me something and i wrote it down and then i came on and scared the living crap out of the american people to start another war in the middle east (laughs) most trusted name in news (laughs) what a
3: joke You win, it's your show now So what's it gonna be? Cause people will tune in How many train wrecks do we need to see? Before we lose touch, oh We thought this was low Well, it's bad, getting worse, oh where all the good people go? I've been changing channels I don't see them on the TV show where are the good people go? We got heaps and heaps of what we see.
4: For the insufficiently cynical, the New York Times ran a piece July 16th by Jeremy Peters that described a new trend in journalism. Political sources demanding and receiving final control over what they are quoted saying in news stories. This is not fact-checking, mind you, but giving the source, quote, final editing power over any published quotations, close quote. Peters says it's standard practice for the Obama campaign, and Romney advisors as well, quote, almost always require that reporters ask them for the green light on anything from a conversation that they would like to include in an article, close quote doesn't sound much like journalism does it and peters says journalists don't like it but quote most reporters desperate to pick the brains of the president's top strategists grudgingly agree close quote maybe someone should tell them to stop it seems obvious that political strategists are generally only giving you an explanation of their political strategies which explanations are usually themselves political strategies At best, those quotes contribute to the inside baseball report that is the most useless genre of election coverage, and much more likely, they're just pure spin. So the news, I guess, is that the sort of journalists who work for national outlets now need to be told that reporting on a politician, and it seems tacitly accepted that the deal only refers to powerful politicians, is not the same as serving as his or her press agent. Imagine if their editors told them that if a source proposed such a deal, they should say no. Maybe some strategists would refuse to do interviews altogether, and campaign correspondents would be forced to report on policy proposals and how they might affect people's lives.
5: He could fall and have a fight, and maybe shoot somebody if they lose a boot. So alright
6: Well, is it any wonder? With stories like uh, this, where journalists are basically giving the sign off on quotes to campaigns and God knows who else. Like I say, if you do it for campaigns and you have no ethical problem with it, why wouldn't you do it for all your reporting? It would maintain your access. Is it any surprise? that confidence in television news drops as well americans confidence in television news is in a no new low by one percentage point with twenty one percent of adults expressing a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in it only twenty one percent this marks a decline from twenty seven percent last year and from forty six percent when gallup started tracking confidence in television news in nineteen ninety three that's stunning. In 20 years, confidence has dropped by 20 points. 25 points. The most interesting finding in this uh latest poll, and these are of course just snapshots, but liberals and moderates lost so much confidence in television news this year, 11 and 10 points respectively. Their views are now more akin to conservative views and that marks a turnaround from the pattern since two thousand nine and where liberals had expressed more confidence than conservatives the interesting thing is the decline since last year in confidence ten percentage points in television news among liberals did not coincide with a similar decline among democrats democrats this year are the most confident in television news media uh, among key subgroups Interestingly, postgraduates who tend to be Democrats are now the least confident. Why is this? My guess is, and this is complete conjecture on my part, that you watch something like the two purported liberal cable television networks, and for the most part, all you get is cheerleading for President Obama. No criticism, no discussion of some of the greater systemic issues. And I have a feeling a lot of these postgraduates, they spend a lot of their time online reading experts. So it's interesting, perhaps not that surprising, but it's definitely interesting to see that split between liberals and Democrats.
7: Was just guessing at numbers and figures, pulling the puzzles apart, questions of science, science and progress, don't speak as loud. What's the number one source of news for most Americans? The Internet, you say? Niet. The New York Times or Wall Street Journal? Uh Uh-uh. Some fear that it's Fox TV, the shameless spewer of right-wing hokum. But no, not even close. The reality is even scarier than Fox. Get ready to shudder, for America's top news source is your local television station. Yes, the daily purveyors of car wrecks and features on the season's biggest zucchini are the media outlets keeping the masses informed on the issues of the day. Should we laugh, fall down sobbing, or just go bowling? In fairness, some local stations do a crackerjack job, but few even meet a functioning democracy's minimum daily requirement for news to use chiefly because they're nearly all owned by corporate chains that constantly cut reporters and shy away from aggressive reporting, especially any reporting on major advertisers. Now, though, another corporate contagion is spreading throughout TV land, further shriveling the ability or even the desire of local stations to fulfill their news reporting duty to the public. Call it cookie-cutter news. Rather than competing to dig up the best stories, two or more stations in a city have been quietly signing shared services agreements, meaning they share one news director, video reports, local interviews, graphics, office space, and even the scripts read by their news anchors. Except for different network logos on the screen, the broadcasts are basically the same, often word for word. This is Jim Hightower saying at least 83 TV markets from Vermont to Hawaii now have stations engaged in this anti-competitive collusion, abrogating their responsibility to use our airwaves for the public good. For action, go to freepress.net.
5: I don't mean to alarm you right at the beginning of the episode, it's not very polite. It's like walking into someone's apartment and immediately pointing out the spider in the corner or the dump on the carpet. But I have no choice. The truth is, America is at war. I know it's scary. You're like, what, where? Grab my shovel and my mace. If we don't have mace, get some spray on deodorant. We're going to get these (laughs) But it's the truth. America is at war in Afghanistan. It's been going on for about 11, 12 years now. But luckily for 99.9% of Americans, it's not a real war. It's just a silly game going on halfway across the world that no one pays attention to. So it made me think, why don't we just create a TV game show about it? I mean, that's what war is to us anyway. We could have special competitions like who could drop bombs from drone aircraft and kill the fewest civilians or the most civilians who look surly. We could have the indoctrination episode where contestants go in with facts like almost all Muslims are peaceful and then they come out the other side going, all Muslims want to kill me and use the nation's 7-Elevens in a well-planned, highly sophisticated attack of obesity on the American people. Plus, it would be like the Hunger Games, where you have your, your favorite contestants, and then they slowly die horrible deaths. Meanwhile, we'd glorify the weaponry and the armory and laugh about the death and destruction. We could put B-list celebrities in the games, like Hulk Hogan or Todd Palin, and if they died... No one would be too bothered. I mean, that's what's supposed to happen to a B celebrity: they die, or they fall down a spiral of drug addiction, or they go on dancing with the d- It's horrible. Dying for our entertainment is the more compassionate end for them, honestly. So what are we waiting for? Let's get started. Somebody call up French Stewart. Get get Apollo Ono on the phone and Salt and Pepper and that guy who used to say, "Dude, you're getting Adele." We have a reality show to make. What? What's that? Ah, uh, I've just been informed there's already a war reality show. Comes out in a few days on NBC and stars Todd Palin and one of the dudes from the boy band 98 Degrees. And I know that sounds like a bad dream you had after you ate some old shrimp scampi. All we'd have to add is your third grade teacher, but apparently it's a cultural nightmare we're all having. Jesus, I was proposing it satirically, you a- is nothing sacred? Is there nothing that can't be exploited for entertainment? There are literally children getting blown to shreds in Afghanistan as we speak. And over here in our little bubble, it's a game show. It's fun for the whole. All- Family. Exploding people for unknown reasons while 70% of America opposes it. It's simply a good old fashioned dance around the maple. Then again, America seems to oppose it in the same way they oppose eating peanut butter out of the jar with a fork. It seems wrong on many levels, but then when no one's watching... Who really cares? And of course this television show will make war look fun and exciting with no one getting really hurt. But I have a hunch that very few of the episodes will focus on watching your friend die or dealing with PTSD or how it feels to think you're fighting for democracy and then two years later find out you were fighting for ExxonMobil's kleptocracy. But if I'm wrong, if there's an entire episode devoted to giving Dean Kane or Todd Pale and PTSD, if there's an episode about Peekaboo Street losing a leg and an arm to an IED, and then watching how she deals with returning to a society that doesn't even seem to know there's a war going on, then I will come back on here and announce that I am a fool, and I will sing 98 Degrees entire repertoire in my underwear. NBC's Twitter handle is at NBC. Let them know what you think of their new war program, and maybe we can get it off our television sets after only one season, kind of like the war in Afghanistan. This has been your moment of clarity from LeeCamp.net. Keep fighting.
1: Here's a really interesting and telling story about uh, public relations and how they deal with Middle Eastern countries. But it's really more telling about our own press. So this one revolves around Syria. They were represented by a PR group called Brown, Lloyd and James. Now that's not surprising because what they call BLJ for short has represented a lot of people in the and countries in the Middle East some totally benign in, the, in terms of representing Qatar for example and trying to get them the World Cup in 2022 which we, I believe they were successful in yes they were uh they represented the Iraqi politician Ayad Alawi uh he had originally won uh and he was prime minister of Iraq at one point he'd won another election now you can have your thoughts about Alawi but okay I think a lot of people would find that normal in Washington but uh, inconveniently, they've also represented uh, the Assad government in Syria and Muammar Gaddafi in Libya. So, now, they had told the outside world, no, 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 we were done with them in 2010 uh, regarding Syria. And, you know, Assad, I can't believe what he has done to his own people. And guess what we find out? Because of the WikiLeaks releases in July, once again, the best journalism we have in the world is WikiLeaks. <laughs> our our press almost never finds actual government documents and shares them with us in a way that edifies what our government is doing, what the Syrian government is doing, what our corporations are doing. Nobody does it better than WikiLeaks. So here we find out that in fact uh, this PR group, a BLJ, had sent another memo well after they said that they stopped representing the Syrian government in May of 2011, giving the Syrian government advice on how to handle this PR. Mess. Well, you know, if you were in the middle of a civil war and you're killing women and children, that's a bit of a PR mess. We appreciate them chipping in like that. Now, of course, now that they're caught with their hand in the cookie jar, they've made untold amount of money from representing dictators in the past. They said, "What us dictators? Oh no, no, no! That was just an unsolicited uh, advice that we wanted to give them so that they could uh, get to a more peaceful resolution." Uh, and it not just to contain their PR problems, but so that they would head in the right direction. But you know what? They didn't listen to that and they didn't head in a peaceful direction. So, oh well, we tried our best. Oh, come on, get, get. Now, we know this is a lot of uh, crap because of other documents that have now uh, been revealed. One of them uh, explains uh, about this intern that they had. Her name is Shahrazad Jafari. Well, if you're going to do PR, not a bad way to go. Anyway, she's uh, also happens to be the daughter of the uh, Syrian envoy to the United Nations, so in some ways connected to the Syrian government. She's working for this uh, Brown Lloyd and James PR group. And Assad, if you remember, had an interview with Barbara Walters. Now, before the Barbara Walters interview, I love this. Uh, this uh, person, and she also goes by Sherry. Sherry sends a note to Luna Chabel, who is one of Assad's media advisors, and tells them, quote, American psyche can be easily manipulated when they hear that there are mistakes done, and now we are fixing it. So she tells, basically, Assad to go and talk to Barbara Walters and say, you know, we understand there were some mistakes, but, you know, we are looking to fix them. Now, this is in the middle of butchering their own civilians. Do they think there was mistakes? No, the only mistake is that they didn't butcher enough of them. In their opinion, that they could quell the revolution, which they haven't been able to. Okay, do they, are they, were they going to fix it? Of course not. That interview was in twenty eleven. All they did is further massacres. Now, uh, at least seventeen thousand civilians killed in Syria. In the middle of those massacres, all they're doing is PR, and they're paying a Western company to do that PR for them. And you know what? Sherry's right. That is how you manipulate uh the american people and they are easy to manipulate that's what every politician in america does after hurricane katrina yeah, there were mistakes we understand that but uh, let's not uh, play the blame game let's not do finger pointing let's look forward and not backward okay after the torture of the bush administration oh there were mistakes made but let's look forward and not backward this is an old old PR trick and all they're doing is teaching the Syrian dictator how to play the games our politicians play and then one of the things that this group did for them was they got really positive press for Assad's wife in fact they got Vogue to run a story on her called Rose in the Desert now, this, is not, didn't it, this didn't happen in the 1980s, 1990s, 2000. It didn't happen in 20, or 2009. It happened in 2011, in the middle of this mess. Rose in the desert. Now, it turns out the person who was the editor there, a longtime Paris editor of Vogue, was Joan Juliet Buck. And you think, how could she possibly run this in, in the middle of this uh, civil war? Well, it turns out she do not know nothing. In fact, the guy who was in charge of this account, Mike Holtzman, tells Sherry and the others, "Hey, listen. Don't tell Joan anything about what's actually happening in Syria. I think basically we can trick her." So, here are the quotes. Remember that Joan has no impression at all of Syria. That's amazing. Okay. Then he goes on to say, "Not to mention anything controversial to Joan. <laughs> like like they're perhaps they're in the middle of killing their own civilians and they're in a civil war." And the, it also says, uh, "Don't mention lists Syria may be on, like the terrorist list, rumor, etc., like the rumor that maybe they're killing their own civilians, which was absolutely true." And finally, they say, "What Jones sees must be a hundred affirmative, meaning a hundred percent affirmative." So now, look, I know this is a fashion magazine, but it's not that far off from describing a lot of our media. Here's a PR company basically telling. The dictators' team, the media is a bunch of idiots. They don't know anything, so just don't bring up any issues and say, "Oh, she's the the Desert Rose of the Desert." Yes, oh no, no, there's nothing going on in Syria. Don't look, don't look. There's nothing going on in Syria. Syria is awesome. What are you talking about? Yeah, go ahead, go ahead, publish it. And you know what they did? Mission accomplished. That's how you do PR. What's really sad about it is not just the state of our media overall here in the West and specifically in the United States, but also how easy it is to manipulate our people. Just pay a little PR company and they get you some press. And by the way, it's the same PR company that represents the terrorist group Mujahadin El-Khach. And what do they do? Well, they hired a bunch of Republicans and then smartly hired some Democrats as well to give speeches for twenty thousand dollars, sometimes even more. They did this propaganda campaign that, were, oh, they're not a terrorist group anymore. Well, they've killed Americans before. Oh, that's okay. That's okay. That was a long time. Now there are terrorists. They're helping kill Iranian civilians for our side, so they're okay. And guess what? Now Mujahideen Al Khaw is going to be taken off the terrorist watch list. President Obama is heading in that direction. Why? Because they hired a PR company, and they did some good PR, and they killed some ci- the civilians in, on our behalf. So, voila! The American people, apparently, according to these PR people, and I'm, I'm afraid sometimes they're right, can be incredibly easy to deceive. All you just have to do is tell them a couple of pretty words and say, Oh, no, 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 those guys aren't terrorists. The, the ones who are fighting are terrorists. The guys that are killing civilians on ours, those are the good guys, right? The main problem that Assad had was that... He lost the biggest PR agency of all, the United States government. And then once you lose them, then you're in a lot of trouble.
0: Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be.
3: Pundits like New York Times columnists Tom Friedman and Nicholas Kristof. Commonly lament how Palestinian activism lacks a non violent strategy. Where is the Palestinian Gandhi, we hear, who could inspire those violent Arab masses to lay down their weapons? Well, Mahmoud Sarsak, a professional Palestinian soccer player, was recently released from an Israeli prison after a three month hunger strike. He'd been imprisoned for three years without charge or trial because Israeli security forces said he was a member of Islamic Jihad. Sarsak's release came just months after 33-year-old baker Kader Adnan won his freedom after a hunger strike. But Sarsak's release, like Adnan's, received almost no attention in U.S. corporate media. We found one AP dispatch printed in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette on July 10th in the sports section. Of course, thousands of Palestinians have rejected violence as the most effective means to fight the apartheid structure they live under. Some in favor of what Sarsac calls the revolution of empty stomachs. Somehow the pundits who claim to be waiting for such examples of peaceful resistance just don't seem to notice. <laughs>
6: Back to this story of uh, of these reporters on the campaign trail now. New York Times reports on the fact that whether they're getting quotes from Obama campaign officials or Romney campaign officials, and you got to wonder, regardless of who they're getting uh, these quotes from from campaign officials the campaign officials strike a deal with these journalists that if you're going to quote me you need to send me the quote first and allow me to massage it and you're looking at me like i'm crazy but basically it's this hi i'm a reporter you're uh, from the campaign. What's going on with Ohio? Well, we think we're going to do very well in Ohio. We've got people spending a lot of money there, and uh, that's what uh, we're hoping to achieve. Okay. Now, will you um, send me an email with that quote that I just gave you? Let me check it. You got it, boss. Click, click, click. Here it is. Oh, wait a second. I don't want to say that we got a lot of money come in. Strike that All right, let me type up my article now for the newspaper. This is unbelievable. And the New York Times writes it's a double edged sword for journalists who are getting the on the record quotes they have long asked for, but losing much of the spontaneity and authenticity in their interviews. Is that really a double edged sword? the downside is that the quotes they're getting are completely meaningless, not spontaneous, not authentic, completely without any real value beyond what a campaign official would send out in a press release. But on the flip side, at least they, they get those. Uh, this is not journalism this is pathetic and let me ask you a question do you think that this is just a practice that these journalists cover a campaign for a year year and a half whatever it is they just practice with campaigns i mean if they have no ethical problems doing it in the context of a campaign Why would they have an ethical problem doing it in the context of reporting on the White House, reporting on business officials, reporting on anything? I mean, if it's not wrong in this context, if it's a double edged sword, at least we're getting the quotes. Why would they not do this in every other context? How could we possibly believe they don't do this in every other context? I mean, this is the the functional equivalent of me uh pre-recording an interview and with a politician, with I don't know, with anybody. Asking a good question, getting an answer, and then the guy, you know, you can't run that interview unless you uh, strike that part of it. I just decided I went too far. Okay, you got a boss, beep beep. And I don't even put myself out there as some high-minded journalist. I'm going to report on uh, Medicare penis pumps in a minute. that's just stunning it was difficult to find a news outlet that had not agree, agreed to quote approval albeit reluctantly big difference organizations like bloomberg the washington post Vanity fair reuters and the new york times have all consented to interviews under such terms you know what if it's like hey we've got uh, johnny depp here to talk about the latest movie and you're going to one of those um, p r junkets As pathetic as it is, I guess it really doesn't matter. Who cares? But even still, I bet you there are entertainment reporters who won't even agree to that. What an embarrassment. What an unmitigated embarrassment.
8: you love the Associated Press. Whether or not you are aware of how much you love them, the fact is that if you are at all a news junkie, if you're reading over the course of your typical day, you are basically marinating in Associated Press content all day long. The AP is everywhere. The AP is jointly owned by the American news organizations who use their stuff. And that means thousands of newspapers and TV stations and radio stations. They have hundreds of news bureaus all over the world. They have staff all over the world. They're the only news organization, for example, with a bureau in North Korea, for crying out loud. By dint of sheer size, the Associated Press is just indispensable. They're everywhere. But because they are everywhere, because their content is ubiquitous and used by so many news outlets, when the Associated Press does something bad, it's really bad. It isn't like one newspaper printing one lousy story. If it's the AP, it's one bad story that ends up in a zillion different newspapers and websites and TV stations and radio stations. So, for example, when the Associated Press published just a shockingly bad article about Kansas politics this past week, it did not just end up in some tragic little Kansas newspaper. It ended up in the Kansas City Star and in the Fresno Bee, and in the Charlotte Observer, and in the Minneapolis Star Tribune, and in the Miami Herald, and the State in South Carolina, and in the Times-Pick in Louisiana, and in the Seattle Times, and the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, and in the Connecticut Post, and the San Francisco Chronicle, and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and, 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 and. All of these papers, or their websites, and all of the aggregator websites, running an eye-popping, associated press story that never should have run anywhere. Dr. George Tiller was murdered in Kansas three years ago when the anti-abortion activist who killed him was pulled over by police right after the killing. The murderer had in his car the name and phone number of the policy director of Operation Rescue written on a piece of paper on his dashboard. Operation Rescue, the radical anti-abortion group. The Associated Press on Friday published a piece about the Kansas primaries this week, focusing on the district attorney's race in Wichita where Dr. Tiller was killed. The AP notes that the incumbent DA, Democrat named Nola Fulston, is stepping down and no Democrat is running to replace her. It was just two anti-abortion Republicans who campaigned for Nola Fulston's old seat in the Tuesday primary in Kansas. Reporter Roxana Hegeman, reporting for the Associated Press, writes in this piece that it is a liability for one of these two Republican candidates that he has been a deputy in the DA's office he's now running to be put in charge of. Why would that be a liability? To be a deputy district attorney? Why would that be bad? It's because, the Associated Press explains, people blame the current district attorney for the murder of George Tiller. What? This is just astonishing. Look at this. This is quoting directly from the AP's story. Look at this. It's important to note... That Scott Roeder, the abortion opponent serving a life sentence for killing Dr. George Tiller, once told the Associated Press that he believed Dr. Tiller would never be brought to justice as long as Nola Fulston was in office. Brought to justice? That's not in quotes or anything, that's just the Associated Press describes it uncritically. He was never brought to justice. Continuing, the district attorney, Nola Fulston, had refused to allow then-Attorney General Phil Klein to prosecute Dr. Tiller in her jurisdiction, resulting in a judge dismissing charges that the doctor had performed illegal late-term abortions. While Fulston has insisted she was simply upholding the law, many abortion opponents blame her for derailing Klein's prosecution and ultimately for Dr. Tiller's death. If Nola Folston had done her job with George Tiller, he would still be alive today," said Troy Newman, president of Wichita-based Operation Rescue. Operation Rescue quoted as a credible observer in this case. Oh yes, the blame for the doctor being shot to death by the anti-abortion activist with ties to Operation Rescue lies with the district attorney who didn't prosecute that doctor for something or other. He didn't get prosecuted, so obviously he had to be shot. So says Operation Rescue, and so writes down the Associated Press, thus resulting in newspapers all over the country printing this absolutely wackadoo, uncontested, more than insinuation that an abortion doctor was murdered in Kansas because, w- what, he needed killing? Because he hadn't been brought to justice? Incidentally, the assistant DA from Noel Fulston's office won the primary on Tuesday in Kansas, but th- that, is, that is not what this is about. Generally speaking, I love the Associated Press, and you probably do too, but the AP besmirched Tuesday's Kansas primary with this trash that they published about it this past Friday. I haven't said anything about it to now because I keep expecting them to retract it. So far, nothing. Before this week is out, the Associated Press ought to retract what they published, and they ought to apologize. So we go inside and we grave you
9: the stones All those people, all those lives, where than now? With love and hate and
6: passions just like mine They were born and then they lived and then they died Seems so unfair, I want to cry You sir, throws this undone salutation to the dawn
5: And you claim these words as your own But I've read well and I've heard them
6: a maybe maybe Different note, I was wondering if you have any thoughts on Daniel Tosh rape joke debate that started last week. I don't think I've heard you comment on it, and I would be interested to hear how you think humor and politics can cross or combine on controversial sensitive topics. I don't even really know who this comedian is, to be honest, but maybe it has to do with the reputation a comedian has built up on some level as to what kind of leeway or license they are given by the audience to joke about violence or racism or other serious political issues. I think it's best if you don't comment on this, but go ahead. Right, this is what I'm going to say. <laughs> one, Daniel Tosh is, I think, the, one of the highest rated shows on Comedy Central, if not the highest. Tosh .0. Two, I've watched that show before. For about thirty seconds uh, before I went into like one of those sort of mental spirals down sending spirals down where I think like uh... there's no there's no room for me in the uh, comedy world, so forget about that um, three I only saw a, a couple of uh, like uh I don't know the context of his joke but it's possible that it was uh funny in the moment but um, nothing he says is funny to me so I doubt it was. I I do I think it's in bad taste? Yes, do I have I heard jokes about rape uh you know that where the word rape is used in there that I found funny over the years, I imagine I probably have. You know, comedians operate in a different world, and I think context matters. Um, do I uh, feel like I should defend uh, Tosh? No, I don't care. It's show business. You know, you go in, you don't know your audience, it ends up uh, calling you out, but do I think. Far too much time was spent on this? Yes. I can assure you the implications of uh, Peter Tosh or what, what Daniel Tosh telling a joke in a comedy club about rape is probably one of the. Um, is probably uh down on the list of things that uh, impact uh rape and I think sometimes can be used as a scapegoat but do I think the guy should be denounced for it Sure do I think this much time should be spent on it no um, i mean I, I The there's a probably a far greater and maybe this guy's just a surrogate for uh, for people who don't take uh, rape seriously but um, comedians theoretically don't take anything seriously can someone be uh, hammered for a joke I suppose you can think it's bad and you can lose fans but I don't know. I'm not sure what should be off-limits in a comedy club other than what drives people out of their seats. That's, you know, in the main, that's generally
10: how I feel. What's, what's your opinion on the fact that he was interrupted by the person who was not enjoying the joke?
6: I don't think that's relevant one way or another i don't think he you know i don't think that gives him particularly any more or less license you know it's like if you're saying stuff in a comedy club that you can't defend that offend somebody in the comedy club as they walk out and write it on their blog then you got a problem you should be able to defend it if you can't defend it then you got a problem that's basically what it comes down to, to me. Um, and if you can't defend it, you know, apologize and uh, move on. I, I. I mean, for me, I, I think his entire TV show is indefensible. But apparently, it's the highest-rated one on uh, Comedy Central. So I don't even know what to tell you about them.
10: I want to put up on the screen for you what is the most deceptive Fox News graph in recent history that I can remember. Okay, let's take a look at this thing, Lewis. If Bush tax cuts expire, okay, this is a graph that Fox News put together to show what would happen to the top tax rate, the top marginal tax rate, if the Bush tax cuts expire. Now, if you take a look at a quick glance here, you see now on the left a tiny little sliver of a graph and on the right, you see, if they expire January 1st of 2013, look at that huge increase, Lewis. I mean, it looks like it's five times as big. It's, in, it's shocking how much taxes will go up if the Bush tax cuts expire, isn't it? It is, indeed. Now, let's look at the scale of this. You would think, if you're talking about a tax rate, you would have a scale that goes from what? Zero to what? 100. Exactly. And then if you see such a big increase, clearly we're much closer to 100 than we are to zero. Well, no. The scale <laughs> starts at 34, and it goes up to 42. For some reason, We Fox have zoomed News, in on, on this spectrum. Right. Fox News has desi- decided that to be most accurate, to, let, to just report and let you decide, they'll zoom in on just 8 percentage points between 34 and 42 on the scale. And as you can see, that huge, incredible increase that looks to be about 4 or 5 times as big on the right Actually represents four point six percentage points. (laughs) I think you're looking at this the wrong way. Fox News knows that its viewers are so well informed that they're going to be able to take this nuanced graph and understand it for what it really is. Oh, is that right? Yeah. I I have nothing to add to this. So a four point five percent increase looks like a ninety percent increase to Fox viewers, or maybe even a five hundred percent increase to Fox viewers. Sounds about right, and I hate to say it, but a lot of Fox News viewers will accept this, and they'll go around and say, did you see that graph? It's incredible that that top tax rate expires. It's just going to explode. The tax tax rate is going to explode. Oh, wait, it's 4.6 percentage points on the, the, the top marginal tax rate. Hmm. Yes. Oh, well. We're used to this stuff, right? We are, yeah. I mean, it's still a factually accurate graph. It's just composed in a way that could mislead people if they don't pay attention to How it. How do you respond to that, Natan, to the, what Lewis is saying? Which is, it's an interesting point, that factually the graph is not misrepresenting anything. It says the scale is from 38 to 42. How do you count I, that? I think it's pretty clear that when these graphs are shown to people on TV, especially the type of viewer that watches Fox News, the point of it is to get across a, a, a main message, a very simple message. This imposing and this, increase. and this communicates the opposite message to the one that reflects reality. Okay, what, what do you think is the best thing, of, the thing about the show that is best and most appealing to, to somebody who listens or watches? Because we cover everything and we do it well. <laughs> Why do you think people watch the show? I think that it's a completely different angle. I don't think it's about being expansive or up-to-date. I think it's 99% of media that's out there is giving one story, it's giving a particular point of view, and it's also not covering certain stories. So I don't know that it's about being up-to-date or expansive. I think it's, it's a well, non- Well, that's what I said. We cover everything. Well, we don't cover everything, Lewis. How can we cover everything? We cover 8 to 10 stories. Everything important, pretty much. Well, if that doesn't make you curious, I don't know what will. Check out The David Pakman Show at Davidpackman.com.
1: Fox News is on the warpath, and of course so is Mitt Romney, on our new controversy ginned up by the right-wing blogosphere, and then Fox News, then Mitt Romney, and it's uh, about a speech that President Obama gave where he was talking about business owners, and they think, and they are saying, that according to them, he says in the speech to the business owners that you didn't build that, meaning you didn't build your own business. Now, the first thing I want to do before I show you Fox's lies about this is to show you the actual context of the line. And I need you to concentrate on what he says about roads and bridges right before he delivers that you didn't build that line. So listen for roads and bridges.
11: And you know, there are a lot of wealthy, successful Americans who agree with me because they want to give something back. They know they didn't... If you've been successful, you you didn't get there on your own. You you didn't get there on your own. I'm always struck by people who think well it must be because I was just so smart. There are a lot of smart people out there. It must be because I worked harder than everybody else. Let me tell you something. There are a whole bunch of hard working people out there. If you were successful, somebody along the line gave you some help. There was a great teacher somewhere in your life. Somebody helped to create this Unbelievable American system that we had that allowed you to thrive. Somebody invested in roads and bridges. If you got a business, that you didn't build that. Somebody else made that happen. The internet didn't get invented on its own. Government research created the internet, so then all the companies could make money off the internet. The point is, is that when we succeed. We succeed because of our individual initiative, but also because we do things together.
1: So, the theme of the speech is, yes, we succeed because of our individual initiative, but also because we work together. And, you know, your teachers helped you, the roads and bridges helped you. In fact, he says, you know, the government built the roads and bridges, and then he turns around and says about the businesses, you didn't build that. He's clearly, the sentence before, referring to the roads and bridges, and perhaps it isn't clear, he could have made it clear, he could have connected the two things, but they were one sentence after another, and then Fox News goes, yes! We can selectively edit that and pretend that he's talking about your business when within the full context of the speech, and that speech goes on and on about how we all do these things together. Now, obviously, Mitt Romney campaign loves this. Immediately, a political attack ad on it, Let's watch.
11: If you've been successful, you didn't get there on your own. You didn't get there on your own. I'm always struck by people who think, well, it must be because I was just so smart. There are a lot of smart people out there. It must be because I worked harder than everybody else. Let me tell you something. If you've got a business, that's, you didn't build
1: that. Somebody else made that happen. My father's hands didn't build this company. My hands didn't build this company. My son's team's not building this company. Did somebody else take out the loan on my father's house to finance the equipment? Did somebody else make payroll every week or figure out where it's coming from? President Obama, you're killing us out here. You're hot. You're killing us out here, President Obama. Uh, by the way, I took out the line about building the roads and the bridges. That came right before the sentence that said, you didn't build that. (laughs) So, now, that's his opponent. Uh, You understand that. That's a political opponent. And, you know, sometimes President Obama has taken Mitt Romney's words out of context. Okay, fair is fair. What's interesting is how Fox News has manipulated this. First of all, this news network has decided to cover this 42 times in the span of two days. So on July 16th and 17th, they did 42 different segments on it, and they did a combined two hours and 19 minutes of television on it. You have to understand something. In television, if you do a seven-minute segment on something, that's pretty long. If you put all those things together, it's two hours and 19 minutes of television. That's a gigantic amount of time on television. So then it's not just all their... You know, opinion program. Of course, Greta Van Susteren, Hannity, O'Reilly, on and on. Fifteen-minute segments, fourteen-minute segments. You know, Fox and Friends did it nine times. But it's also their so-called straight news programming. Laugh along with me. America's Newsroom is supposed to be straight news. They did six different segments on this in just two days. I don't even know how you can do six segments on one topic in two days. Anyway. Uh, apparently, there wasn't much else uh, to cover, according to Fox News' straight news. They also brought on Stuart Barney, Senator John Barrasso, and Donald Trump all to talk about this issue. And shockingly enough, they all agreed that it was all President Obama's fault and that he I, they were shocked and chagrined that he would say this. How many of them put that in the proper context of he was referring to all the things we have built together, like the internet, the roads, and the bridges? A total of zero. In fact, you want to see how propaganda works, and as you watch this, understand the most important part of this is that Fox does this on purpose because if they cover an issue for long enough and and keep repeating it over and over again, it forces the other channels to go. Well, I guess you know everybody's talking about it. I guess it's a big scandal. And then next thing you know, CNN covers it. Next thing you know, everybody's covering it. Next thing you know, the local news is covering it. This is exactly how Fox News works as a propaganda outlet rather than a news outlet. Watch them pound it here. So you work hard, you build a successful business. Don't go patting yourself on the
7: back, though. Small business owners, guess what? The president has a new message for you.
11: If you got a business, that you didn't build that. Somebody else made that happen.
10: Huh? Ooh. You didn't build that? Who built that? <laughs> Who built that business? Who worked? Who invested? Who took risk? If you built
8: a small business and made it a big success, you didn't build that. I think it's
1: disturbing. It's petty. It's mean. It's ignorant. It's so demeaning. It's so disheartening. It's no. It's, it's so infuriating. It was almost an
10: insult. It was an insult. Just an insult.
7: Does President Obama want a do-over?
10: Successful people shouldn't give themselves all of the credit. Thank a bureaucrat.
1: President yeah. Obama not exactly making friends with business owners. They shouldn't be considered special
3: in America. And indeed, they should pay more in income tax.
2: Well, I think we're starting to find out the
6: real
3: Obama. That's a neo socialist uh, 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 approach
7: to economics. It
1: has a very socialist theme to it. I get in a lot of trouble for calling him a socialist. His policies are socialist and we don't need to have him
7: literally spit in our face and tell us what we're doing is not worthy. It sounds un-American. It sounds European. I mean, doesn't it Uh, change the whole definition of the American dream to a certain extent?
3: Those comments go against the very essence of the American success story, the American dream. It just sounds like a guy who who, who doesn't
2: want to allow businesses to prosper in this country. This statement, I truly believe, is where he revealed his collectivist preference ideologically. I think it's where he revealed his contempt for capitalism, small business, and the men and women who make this country.
1: Which other news organization sends talking points to all their news anchors so they repeat the same exact talking points, like, Joe the plumber, Joe the plumber, socialist, socialist, doesn't understand business, doesn't understand business. And on and on it goes. Talking Points Memo did a brilliant job of piecing that together. And uh, let me just read you the quote one more time. The sentences next to one another. Somebody invested in roads and bridges. If you've got a business, you didn't build that. Somebody else made that happen. Clearly referring to the roads and bridges that you didn't build, that we all built together. And within the context of the speech which we shared with you, it's obvious. He's saying, hey, listen, you've got your own initiative, and that's terrific, and that's necessary. And it's also necessary that we work together to build you the roads, the bridges, the Internet, to give you the education that you needed to make happen. And that's a theme that the American people agree with. In fact, Mitt Romney, from time to time, says the same thing on the campaign trail. He agrees with it. But when Fox News presented this gift to him, though, of course, he jumped in it. And right away started doing a campaign ad against President Obama with this grossly misleading attack. Now, this is why we say Fox News lies.
9: and best to the left uh, this is Daniel Platt from New York and I'd like to give a report back on Occupy Wall Street hey remember that that uh, thing you did 10 episodes on in the fall uh, well what, the audience is probably wondering what happened to it well I'm going to give a report back on what's happening in the fall we were using a decision making process that was called modified consensus now at the time I was ignorant of what was actually being modified and it turns out that they took a, uh, well, the coordinators of the movement took a process known as formal consensus created by a man named T.T. Uh, Butler and modified it so that it didn't work. So they took something that worked and then didn't work because the whole point of formal consensus is that it's not a voting process. It was a collaborative process. Uh, the process of of working together and it wasn't and they turned it into something where we were voting so by November we had a system decision making that was very close to like being like Congress where egos and dogma was controlling factors so it, it's no wonder things fell apart so in the past month I've been part of a bunch of meetings to get things moving again to restart the G.A. which stopped in March and to have a body that can start making decisions because Occupy Wall Street is kind of not the leader but the example set and as we have broken up and slowly slowly died so too are other occupies languishing and we're still doing actions always, always doing actions direct actions, always busy but we lost a lot of people because of the uh, lack of structure at the problems we had that I just listed. But for all consensus, you can learn more about it at consensus.net. It's absolutely revolutionary. And I think that Occupy should stand for alternatives. Uh, alternatives to electoral politics, as your episodes show. We need alternatives to the economic system we have, the healthcare system, the education system. Uh, we have all these problems, but we're not dealing, we're not looking for answers. So, because this is a .NET digital place. There's also several other options, but you have to explore them for yourself. And perhaps, Jay, you could do a show on it, uh, or, and perhaps do a kind of follow-up Occupy show. I know this radio and common sense uh, sometimes mention it, but not many other sources talk about it, usually because of a corporate media blackout or some other such not paying attention. So, uh, thank you for uh, keeping us rambling. And if you want, and I'll leave another message if I have to uh, have more to say. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is two zero six two zero two three four one zero. So this is uh, so a few months ago now. I, I used a song on the show by Paul Simon from his Graceland album, and I got a comment. Uh, in response that I cannot for the life of me find now uh, because I, I'm not sure how it can It could have been email or I don't think it was a voicemail. Uh, it could have been uh, Twitter or Facebook. Or who knows what? But I can't find it. Uh, but but I do, I basically remember what it said and they, they were uh, commenting and sort of angrily saying, you know, how could you uh, use a song from Paul Simon, you know, especially the Graceland album and and support someone like that who broke the boycott against the South African apartheid back in, you know, 1985. And, uh, all of this was news to me, uh, because the Graceland album was recorded when I was between three and four years old. So I wasn't up on the South African apartheid news uh, buzz at the time. And so I had no idea that there was ever any controversy surrounding Paul Simon's Graceland album. And, you know so my first thought was like oh boy i don't know that sounds like something i shouldn't be supporting and you know but i didn't really do anything about it honestly i just kind of let it go and moved on with my life and then by by i think pure coincidence a few weeks later on uh, the david feldman show which i listen to regularly cuz he uh, you know appears on best of the left on occasion and uh, and so he was having a conversation he brought up the paul simon apartheid issue uh revolved revolving around the graceland album because it's uh it's like the 25th anniversary or you know the 25th anniversary just happened something like that and there was a movie made specifically addressing sort of a look back at this whole controversy and so David Feldman just was giving it a glowing review at how good the documentary was. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting, specifically because I got this one comment from one person who brought this up in, in relation to the show. And, you know, because I like Paul Simon and that album and was interested in the uh, you know the whole controversy, I thought, you know what? I'm going to watch that movie because I don't know anything about this subject and this sounds like an okay way to uh, to learn about it. So it, it it features, you know, plenty of interviews with Paul Simon, but also lots of people surrounding the issue, lots of the musicians who were originally a part of recording that album. And it does a really amazingly good and balanced job of showing the really interesting perspectives of both sides. Paul Simon basically takes the perspective that, you know, although he was completely opposed to the apartheid state in South Africa, that you know he sh- as an artist he shouldn't be restrained by a boycott like that and you know it was all about the music and and you know so he was resisting the apartheid in his own way but not going along with the political uh, sort of idea the, the strategic way to combat the apartheid state and uh, you know and then the other side was sort of like hey we we have this strategy in place for a reason we have this boycott in place for a reason in order to be supportive of the strategy you have to abide by the boycott and so on and so you you really get a pretty decent look at both sides and honestly i came away from it with mixed feelings you know i i don't have mixed feelings about you know how it all ended up 25 years later everyone's perfectly happy about it everyone loves everyone else everything's forgiven and you know there're no hard feelings left over so i certainly don't feel bad about using Paul Simon's music in the show now. But uh, you know, but looking back, I was like, "Oh, I'm not sure like if I if I'd been in his position 25 years ago, I'm not sure I would have done what he did." But anyways, it was really interesting stuff and and particularly I thought would be interesting to listeners of this show due specifically to all of the talk of uh, you know, privilege and race relations and all those things that have been a, a part of the the major conversation going on for the last uh, few months because you know this was this is like you know privilege at its at its peak you know paul simon this white rich american going to you know poor black apartheid south africa to make music I mean, it's really interesting, really complicated, really nuanced, and, and really worth checking out. Uh, so, I just want to mention it and, and let you know that if you would like to see it yourself, it is called Under African Skies. So, you know, Google. I think it's on Hulu Plus. That's where I uh, saw it. And uh, yeah, so if you're interested, check it out. Highly recommended. So that's going to do it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to everyone who supports the show by becoming a member or making a one-time donation. Uh, Every single one of those is absolutely uh, appreciated and is what helps make the show go. Of course, everyone can help support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and by spreading the word of individual clips you particularly like through your social networks. That can be done on the website itself. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show. From bestofleft.com.
5: Five pints of black and white. You took apart a picture that wasn't right. Bitch Pitch burning on a shiny sheet. The only maker that you want to
3: do. A dying man in a living room. The shadow bases the floor. Who'll take you out and
5: On farewell to a
8: friend It's not what I'm done